Well, it has been a real privilege to be here uh, and to share about, I want to say two of my favorite subjects, blessedness and the Trinity. But I feel like I should say three of my favorite subjects, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, anyway, uh, I've had several ways to approach this doctrine uh, as we've shared these three weeks together. I decided for this one, I just wanted to share with you my favorite passage of Scripture. Um, everything's, everything's in there, and uh, I want to take some time to open up Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So um, if you mark in your Bible, this would be a good week to do it, because I'm going to show you some things there that I, that I hope will help you navigate it. Um, You'll turn to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I just want to start our time together by reading it out loud to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." Now, I need to apologize that as I read that passage, I did not do it justice. So I'm tempted to read it again, maybe in a different translation. That was the ESV, but if you were trying to follow along in any other translation, there were multiple points at which you thought, did we jump passages or something? There's too much in there for any English translation to get it. So I feel like I should try to read it again, maybe try harder to communicate more of the fullness that is in these verses. Uh, but I know that I would only fail again if I read it again. I would bring everything I had to the public reading of Scripture, and I wouldn't measure up to it. Because what's here in Ephesians 1 is better than any expression I can put into the words. Uh, it's far better than anything I can say about it. And what that means for our time together this morning is that the best part of the sermon is already over. So it's all downhill from here. Like, that was the good part, and now I'm just going to say stuff about it. And we're just stuck together here, and it's snowing. So, because this passage, what we got in front of us, is exalted. Uh, it is one of the highest mountain peaks in all of Scripture. I'm going to tread on some dangerous ground here and, and play favorites inside the Bible. Um, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul is arrested by the recognition that the triune God has given us a blessing. And this theme of blessing so overwhelms him 
that he writes an overwhelming sentence about it. And I said sentence because what I just read to you may have sounded like five sentences because it has to be if it's going to obey even the basics of English grammar rules. Uh, but in the original Greek that Paul wrote this in, it's one long sentence, all of that. You look at it in your Bible, verse 3 down to verse 14, one long sentence. Um, it has about 202 words in it in uh, Greek. Your mileage may vary according to which English translation you're reading. It's all over the place as translators run and scramble and try to do justice to what Paul has done here. Um, it sometimes reminds me of like you take a kid to the zoo or something and they experience all sorts of things and then they come home and you ask them, what, what did you see there? And they take a deep breath and they just go, oh, the lions and tigers and bears and elephants and the monkeys and then this other thing, there was popcorn and there was candy corn and there was all this and then I, got, then I fell down in a puddle and it all comes out at once. There's, it feels like there's no structure to it and it's just like I don't want to take long sentences to give you in an orderly fashion a recapitulation of my experience at the zoo. I want to go blah and get it all out at you at once. Something like that is happening here. Paul's got the entire thing in his mind at once, and he thinks, I can lay things down precept by precept, Romans 1 through 7, and I can kind of put things in order for you. I'm Paul. You know, I studied with all the right people. I know how to do that. Or I can also take a deep breath and give you the whole thing at once. And that's kind of what we got here in Ephesians 1. Um, it's hard to know whether we should say that this sentence travels a tremendous distance and covers everything along the way. If you kind of wrote the whole thing out, verses 3 through 14, uh, across the front of the stage, that would be a long distance. You'd have to walk some to cover it all. Or whether we should say that it never really leaves the region of the blessing and the praise and the glory of God, whether it kind of gets up there or even starts up there and just circles around and around in one place, surveying everything. Because without ever seeming frantic or even rushed, it does drive forward with tremendous energy, this sentence. Without ever really losing its balance, it tumbles forward in phrase after phrase. And without ever forgetting itself or what it's up to, this sentence takes unexpected detours, doubling back on itself, tripling back on itself. Without ever blinking or looking away, this sentence Paul has written examines its subject matter from every angle. It's, it's, you know, what a sentence. Is it maybe the best sentence in the Bible? I don't know if I'm allowed to make declarations about that. But it's close, right? It's, it might be one of the best sentences in the Bible. I mean, there are only a few other sentences that even try to compete with it. And maybe Romans 8 has a couple of sentences in there. Um, Hebrews 1, it's, it's a pretty great sentence. We're kind of treading on dangerous territory here. Um, this is in an elite company within the entire council of the Word of God. This one stands out. The whole Bible, of course, is the Word of God. That's why this is kind of dangerous territory. You could say that the entirety of sacred scripture is a, a mountain range that stands up over the plains of human discourse. But even within mountain ranges, there are some especially tall mountains, right? And this, Ephesians 1, is a mountain peak that stands out even in the mountain range of scripture. I've read a pile of commentaries on this over the years as I've struggled with it, uh, trying to kind of get it all in my mind. And uh, one of my... <laughs> One of my favorite weird kind of nerdy commentaries on this has charts in it of long sentences, very long sentences, and extremely long sentences. Because there are several long sentences in Paul, and if you wanted to really make this boring, you could look at a chart of long sentences, very long sentences, and my favorite, extremely long sentences. So this is one of them. So one commentator called this, and I'll quote, Quote, the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever met in the Greek language. Now, 
monstrous really does not sound pious. So uh, that's why I put that in scare quotes and blamed this commentator, who I won't even name, so you can't talk bad about him. But the thing is, there's something going on there that he picks out. You have to admit that the sentence is wild, right? It's, it's not a tame sentence, you might say. Um, it's not domesticated. It's an unmanageable sentence about an uncontainable God's indescribable blessing. The wildness of the blessing that God has given us in Christ is an important aspect of what God's doing. And this sentence about God's blessing is intended, I think, to produce a kind of sober dizziness. Right? If the sentence doesn't make you dizzy, you're not reading it right, or maybe I didn't read it right. Just look at the nouns in here. Uh, so Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, I'm just going to go through and pick out the nouns. Listen to these. Blessing, adoption, purpose, praise, grace, the beloved, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, insight, a plan, verse 10, an inheritance, truth, gospel, salvation, guarantee, glory. That's just the nouns. I mean, that is more than enough to fill some time together if we just went through. You could practically have a dictionary of theology, or at least a dictionary of salvation, just by doing a tiny little word study and giving a couple-sentence summary of what every one of those nouns mean. It's all right there, yeah? But now sort of cover that eye and just look at the verbs in this sentence. Uh, blessed, chose, predestined, lavished, making known, to unite, to hope, sealed, acquire. That's great. And if we were going to be competitive about this, we could have like a nouns versus verbs and see which one's best. But that would be silly, right? Because it's the nouns and the verbs working together in what Paul's doing for us here in this sentence that really make things work. But look at the prepositions in... What, no, see, that would be silly. That would be, I can only, I can only uh, impose on your patience so long. Like, the nouns are awesome. Actually, the prepositions are incredibly awesome in context, right? In, with, before. These are all, all mind-blowing, but, but it would get silly if I pursued that. Okay, this sentence, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, again, in your translation, it's multiple sentences, but just bear in mind what Paul has written as he wrote this out in Greek or dictated in Greek, is one long sentence. It proposes more ideas pointing in more directions than anyone could reasonably be expected to take in. I, I think that's on purpose. I'm not up here criticizing Paul's sentence, which is God's sentence, right, and saying like, well, you really need an editor there, Paul. You should have chopped that down a little bit. Um, this, I think the length and the wildness of it is a feature, not a bug. I think it's supposed to be this kind of a wild sentence. Um, more than you can take in, because taking it all in and managing it is not the point. The point is for it to blow up underneath you as you study it. There's an abundance here bordering on excessiveness. This is one of the passages of the Bible that I think that really has to be memorized in order to be taken in. Have you ever run into one of those in your, in your Bible study? You read it and you think, I mean, I'm not dumb. I know what sentences mean. I can read this. But you can't really sort of get it all in your mind, and you think, I know what I could do. I could memorize it. If I store it in my head and carry it around with me, it's not that I've mastered it, but that I've always got it with me to consult. That's the kind of sentence this is. This word from God was spoken in order to do something in particular. No word of God will ever go out uh, from him and return to him void, right? God says in Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it out. And this word was sent out to blow your mind. 
This was sent in particular to expand our sense of what salvation is and to connect it directly to who God is. So, it was sent to shake us out of thinking we've got this all figured out. It was sent to disorient us. Seriously, can I ask, what good is a sentence that's this far over our heads? Right? You ever, you ever, um, you ever get in the wrong room? You ever bluff your way into the wrong room where people know way more than you? Like, you kind of, you bluffed your way in there somehow by sounding like you knew what you were talking about, and then they start going, and you think, oh no, I'm out. Right? I had, I had one or two ideas about this, and now I'm with the experts, and they're, they're all up here, and I'm just trying to smile and not drool, you know, and like not look out myself as absolutely stupid about the subject matter in which they have expertise. Um, sometimes you're just in a room where it's over your head and you think, okay, not for me, not for me, not at this time. This sentence is in danger of doing that. What good is a sentence this far beyond us? Well, Paul knows and God knows that we need to be summoned out of ourselves sometimes in order to praise God. And this word from God is a good solid dose of disorientation. This is a disorientation sentence on purpose. All of us think about things from our own point of view. We can't help it, right? You wake up this morning, you think, where am I? What is the next thing I have to do? It, it's, it, there's, a, there's a necessary self-centeredness to getting your orientation on where you are in the world. You, know? you go to a map, and if the map doesn't have the little X on it saying you are here, it's useless, right? It's fantasy land. It's like territory. But if you don't know where you are in it, you can't make use of any of that information. So um, we've got to start thinking from where we are if we're going to understand what anything means. It can't be avoided. But when our little created minds come to encounter the infinite triune God, we run the risk of just adding God to the catalog of items that we're oriented towards. Uh, so you've got things you're interested in. We could add God to our list of things we're interested in or studying or acquiring or reaping some benefits from. Especially when the issue is the blessing of salvation, which is about changing your life, the danger is great that our finite minds will treat God and his blessings as enhancements to be added to our lives, along with the other enhancements we're considering adding to our lives. It's, it's, it's entirely possible that we can make a self-improvement program, and one of the items on the list would be God. And then we, get, we kind of have a little revival and feel holy about it and say, oh, but he's the top item on the list. Like, the ultimate self-enhancer is God. Yeah, I put him way up there. But notice the problem is you're still moving out of a center in yourself and adding God to the list of things that make your life better. There's no way out of this. The way to escape it, this habitual tendency of ours, would have to be to be drawn out of ourselves by something that's already outside of ourselves, by the bewilderingly vast and complex gospel of God. So the excessiveness of Paul's sentence here has a purpose. It wants to disorient us, to disorient us from our existing categories and then draw us into the divine orientation. What we need is the miracle of being able to see our own situation from an infinitely higher point of view. We need to start our thinking from a center in God rather than in ourselves. Now, can we do that? Can you put that on your to-do list? Start thinking from a center, not in yourself. We do not have it in ourselves to do that. We, must, we most decisively don't have that in us. It will take a miracle for us to grasp what God's saying to us here. That's why Paul stops and prays just a little bit later on in Ephesians. He knows what he's done. And so a little bit later, if you look at Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
uh, so that you can know these things that he's telling us about. And then if you jump down to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul stops to pray again. I think this is the only letter in the New Testament where Paul stops himself in the middle and does little prayer reports twice uh, that are definite prayers for those who are hearing the message. Again, he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this can happen because, as Paul says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So we come to this sentence asking for the miracle of understanding to take place in our minds by the power of God. Even this morning, may it be that the miracle of understanding takes place in our minds through the power of the Spirit of God. So lost in wonder, love, and praise, we make our way into this amazing sentence and try to get our bearings within the blessing of God. Because this complex and bewildering sentence doesn't repel us, I hope you can hear that it invites us in with many, many kinds of invitations. Um, asking us to dwell in the spiritual power of the Word of God and let ourselves experience its progress, its undulations, its repetitions, its elaborations, and the fullness of its blessing. It's my favorite verse. It's my favorite set of verses. Um, So, there on the pages of our Bible is this sentence, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. It's better than anything I can say about it, but as you can tell, I'm going to try And to do my best to make a sermon out of it, there are going to be three things I want to say about it. So it's a three-point sermon if you're taking notes. Um, Three things, actually. Actually, three sets of three things, so I'm kind of cheating. I'm putting, like, I heard you like three, so I put three inside your three. So here's here's nine for you. But it's three points. Um, We'll be brief. We'll consider them as sets or as triads. Uh, And the the last triad we're going to look at, spoiler alert, the last one we'll look at is the triad of divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second to the last is the triad of past, present, and future. So that's an easy advance organizer. Um, But I want to start with the triad of blessing. Blessing. So the first thing we'll look at is the repetition of blessing here. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul takes up this word bless and rings three changes on it right here in the first verse. Blessed be God who blesses us with a blessing. It's the exact same word in English as it is in Greek, but notice it runs in two directions. And this is crucial to notice that as we bless God who blessed us with a blessing, we should bless God because he is the God who has blessed us. Notice that here we are joined to God by this verb to bless. Both of us are agents involved in the blessing business. God's doing blessing. We're doing some blessing. Same word. We bless God, God blesses us. Both happen here. But as soon as we say that in kind of a cozy way, you're sort of taken aback because we don't bless God in the same way that God blesses us, right? Same word, same verb, totally different meaning based on which direction it's going. Think first about the initiative. Were we blessed before God blessed us? No. He blessed us, and then we blessed him back by calling him blessed. Just as scripture says we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, so in this case, we bless because he first blessed us. The phrase, bless God who blessed us, means that the order of operations is, step one, God blesses us. Step two, we bless God back, responding to his prior work of blessing. So the initiative is important. We bless God because he blessed us, even though the sentence runs, bless God who has blessed us. We weren't blessed before God blessed us. But was God blessed before we blessed him? Well, yeah. In fact, when was God blessed? 
God was always blessed. God was always already blessed. He was never not blessed or blessed. I've already, uh, uh, I think, announced that I don't care which way you pronounce that. Um, He didn't wait for us to bless him for him to be blessed. Like, this is the mind-blowing part of the doctrine of divine blessedness, but God is blessed in himself. So the structure where you wait for someone to bless you so you can be blessed, that only applies to us. That's not how it works in God. Blessedness in the Bible is this divine attribute where God can be called the blessed, without even a noun there, just the word blessed turned into a noun, the blessed, or we would say the blessed one. 1 Timothy 6.15 calls God the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. To him be eternal dominion. And of course, Paul talks about the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So in fact, blessedness is, as I've argued before, one of the most important divine attributes. Just as you take all the divine perfections, bundle them up, and think about what they would be if they shined outwards from God. Similarly, if you take all those divine attributes and consider what it must be like for God to possess them and know he possesses them and like possessing them, you'd say, wow, that must be blessed. That's why God is his own blessedness. That's why God is always already blessed. Blessed is the answer to to the question, what is it like to be God? What's it like to be God? I wouldn't expect to have very many answers to that question. I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't expect to be able to narrate for you from inside the experience of what it's like to be God. But the biblical answer is, oh, that's, that's blessed. That's always already blessed in itself. And it's fine to paraphrase this in modern English as happiness. Uh, it's happiness. It's the ultimate joy. I mean, it's more than the way we use happiness and joy in common contexts. Um, it's, it's more like it's the ultimate solid real thing that happiness and even joy are shadows of in our own experience. God has blessedness. He is blessed. He's sufficient, self-sufficient, all-sufficient. God is blessed. And it's easier to say this, it's easier to see this, if you put it in the context, of course, of the Trinity, uh, the biblical idea of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not incomplete or lonely or needy. They're not sitting around heaven wishing that they had some company. Uh, No, God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, is fully happy, completely satisfied, entirely fulfilled within the dynamic of the divine life itself. What we get here in Ephesians is that out of God's own infinite, bottomless, eternal blessedness, God blesses us. Ephesians 1.3, bless God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The blessedness of God is the fountain and foundation of our salvation. It's the blessedness of God that is the secret of this giant Ephesians sentence. It starts with the eternal depth of God's own blessedness. And that's actually why uh, one great form of systematic theology or of thinking about salvation is just to make a list of blessings. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, I'm not talking about the old hymn, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, though that would be a fine um, accompanying track for this. Um, it's sometimes when you're describing what salvation is, instead of saying, what's the one key central idea that is salvation? You ever have this question like, but what is the gospel? How can I nail it down? How can I bring it to one exact point? That can be valuable sometimes. But a standard biblical mode of thought is instead of focusing and narrowing it down to the one thing that you know salvation is, to say, no, 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 it's like 90 things. 
And if you're good at cramming, you can cram them all into one sentence, but it's a mind-blowing sentence. Right? That's what's going on here. The fact that we are blessing God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing or the full spiritual blessing that has a lot inside of it, that's what Paul's trying to draw our attention to, the whole thing. So what we've heard here is the two terms, blessed be God who has blessed us, but the third occurrence of the word is that he has blessed us with this blessing, which is just the way Ephesians talks. Uh, Ephesians is uh, my favorite, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's my favorite book of the Bible. I'm sorry, I felt guilty when I said that. You are allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. You can do that. That's, I'll give you a pass on that. Go out and get a favorite book of the Bible. You are not allowed to have a least favorite book of the Bible. That's a sin. So it's like, don't, don't do that. So you heard it here first. You can get a favorite book of the Bible, but, but don't follow that logic all the way through. Um, Ephesians just talks like this. If you read through Ephesians, um, in Ephesians, we are graced with grace, loved with love, empowered with power, called with a calling, and here we're blessed with a blessing. That's how Ephesians talks. We are just verbed with a noun all through Ephesians um, as Paul tries to make this point. Uh, Because God is praised here as doing the things that only God can do. So we'll have to move a lot faster if we want to see the rest of what is contained in this sentence. But remember, I already warned you we wouldn't do it justice, and we're well on our way here to not doing it justice. So it's worth paying close attention to the blessedness of God because we're in danger of neglecting it, of starting with, tell me about my blessings. What blessings do I get? What Paul wants you to see here is, no, those blessings you get, they're real, uh, and they are based on the eternal blessedness of God in himself. So the first thing it has to do is lift your eyes to the being of God. And the blessedness of God is the factor that brings forth everything else. But let's turn now to some of that everything else, because the second set of three things that I want you to see here and mark, if you're that kind of Bible-marking person, is the past, present, future structure of this sentence. It's the triad of time. Uh, It's just what has happened, what is now the case, and what will happen. This sentence begins in the eternal life of the timeless God, but then it has a chronological structure. Uh, It's a story with a beginning and a middle and an end going on in this sentence. The past part runs from around verse 4 to around verse 6. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption. It's, it's roughly verse 4 to verse 6. Um, the verse breaks are great as kind of a GPS system for getting around in the Bible with detail, um, but sometimes they don't fit perfectly the movement of thought, and you can just see them desperately struggling uh, to keep up in here. But around verses 4 to 6, um, chosen in Christ, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption. Now, if I wanted to tell you the story of my salvation, I could tell you about the time I got saved. That would be my testimony. It happened in Kentucky, probably 1984 or so. It was a very snowy time. I got snowed in with a Bible, read it, got saved. It was a little less individualistic than that, but that's the basic story. Um, Well, that's my testimony. It's a fine one. This is my story. This is my song. I mean, it's not the most exciting testimony in the world, but by golly, it's mine, and it made a major difference in my life. I can look back to it gratefully and say... This is when I found Jesus. Or if I want to get more theological about that, this is when he reclaimed me. Um, This is the past event to which I look as the start of my life and my biography as a disciple of Christ. But you might notice Ephesians 1 starts before the mid-1980s. It starts further back than my testimony. It starts further back than any of your testimonies. It doesn't start with me being born again or becoming adopted as a child of God. It starts with God the Father predestining me to be adopted. Now, 
I'm not a Calvinist or anything, but you just, you can't get much further back than predestined. I mean, that really reaches all the way back. It starts your story before your story starts, right? Um, In fact, Paul says this wild thing, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? Like, so if I were to tell my testimony, I would make a little stop in the 80s there and tell you about the turning point in my biography. That really matters. That's not an optical illusion. A thing changed in my life. But I would also have to go back further and tell you, my salvation is actually, well, before the foundation of the world. It's older than dirt. Yeah, it, it's way back. But then at verse 7, I mean, that was kind of funny, but thanks for the polite snicker. Okay. Um, at verse 7, then, Paul shifts into the present with this inconspicuous little verb, have. Verse 7, we have. In Christ, we have redemption. We, we've got it. We possess it now. It's a thing that we've got. Uh, we own it. We have it with us. It is the forgiveness of sins. Paul will paraphrase it as. Uh, we have this redemption. That is the forgiveness of sins. It's not something we look back to and remember. It's not something we look forward to and expect, even to expect it with confidence. It's actually something we own. We have it. We have forgiveness of sins. If I were to tell you about myself, the holy God I'm in relation with, and the forgiveness of sins necessary for me to be in that relation with God, I don't just tell you, boy, then I walked the aisle, it was 1984 or whenever it was, and then I was forgiven, and back then I got forgiven. That's true. But I need to say, and guess what? I'm carrying that forgiveness with me. It's a thing I have. I have, present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's also true that one of these days judgment is coming and we are all going to answer to God for everything we have done. And on that day of judgment, I know if the Bible is true that I have kind of an advanced promise that judgment day will go well with me right? That, that I will be forgiven on that day of judgment. So there is a future aspect to it. But Paul's point here is, right now, this morning, those who believe in Christ have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a, it's a present experience. That's not the whole story, but you also cannot live without that story. You cannot live just looking back to that time once upon a time when you got forgiven, or just looking forward to some time, once sometime in the future, when you can confidently expect to be forgiven. You've got to have forgiveness now. It's got to be a present possession. And then around verse 11, Paul moves into that future expectation. We are sealed with a promise, with a view to this future redemption, verse 11. The futurity of this fulfillment, of this blessing, is why I can stand up here and read this amazing passage, and you can say, well, that sounds pretty great. Why am I not just walking around radiating sparks all the time, living in the joy and glory and fulfillment of this redemption I've got? Well, it's because you don't get it all right now. There's a future element to it. So if you got up this morning and thought, is this all? Well, no, I mean, it's great, but it's not all. There is a future element to it um, that's, that's going forward. Um, the Spirit is among us, Paul says, as a down payment. You see that word as a pledge of our inheritance. It's a down payment. We have in person, in the person of the Holy Spirit, a real participation in the glory that will be ours, um, when the spirit of promise is, uh, uh, when, when those promises are fully fulfilled. A down payment, a kind of a, it's a, I don't know what the right financial metaphor is here. Is it like rent to own or a mortgage? Anyway, it's not a cash advance. It's not something you have to give back later. It, it's really the blessing. Well, a lot more could be said there, but I think you can see the past, present, future structure of this. And as you begin to understand that that's what's going on, as you make your way from verse 3 to verse 14, 
you begin to understand, oh, that's why it's so long and why it has everything in it, because it's telling the story of what salvation is, starting in the deep, deep past and moving into the final, ultimate future. Well, Paul has necessarily fallen into another threefold cadence as he works through, we are blessed, uh, bless God because he's blessed us with a blessing, and as he's talked about the past, present, and future of our salvation, he also falls into the best triad, the one I really like to talk about, the Trinity. The third set of three things I want to say about this sentence is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know if you noticed it. This sentence makes its way from the Father who chose us through the beloved Son in whom we have redemption to the promised Spirit with whom we are sealed. The Father chose, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit sealed. It all starts with the Father, uh, the one who Jesus eagerly desires for us to come to know. Uh, sometimes people will say, you know, I teach about the Trinity, and people will say, oh, the Holy Spirit is kind of the ignored or forgotten person of the Trinity, right? The Cinderella of the Trinity, the, uh, uh, the, the, the afterthought, the one you kind of guiltily get to, unless you're Pentecostal, in which case you're supposed to talk about it all the time or something like that. But you kind of have this sense of like, it's really about the Father and the Son, and sometimes we forget the Spirit. Well, that is true. Sometimes we do that. It's sinful. We should stop it. We should make sure to pay due attention and give proper glory to the Holy Spirit. But if I were putting on my worry about persons of the Trinity not getting enough attention hat, I would be worried about the doctrine of God the Father. I would say we probably need to make sure to focus our attention on God the Father and not reassign his sort of job tasks to the Son and the Spirit. So speaking in terms of systematic theology, if I want to study the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, I could take a class on Christology. And if I want to study who the Holy Spirit is, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I could take a class, it's a bigger word, pneumatology. But at least there's a word for it. If I want to study the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, there is not even a word for that class. I might explain why nobody signed up for it last time I offered the class. Because uh, you just got to have a word for this. Um, when you come to the doctrine of God the Father, um, often you can get the word Father, but if you look at our passage, you notice it just says God. Blessed be God who chose us. And then it talks about the, this God sending his son. So that's the tip-off that you go, oh, when it says God, it means God the Father. Not because Jesus isn't God, but because the New Testament is trying to draw our attention to the fatherhood of God. So that when we come to Jesus, um, he is here, sent from the Father, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Oh, I just gave away the secret of John 3.16. Did you catch that? John 3.16. God, meaning God the Father, doesn't say Father, but it means Father. How do we know it means Father? Because he has a son, and he sent his son. So it all starts with the Father. And then it all works its way out through the Son, as the phrase, in Christ, shows. And this is probably the real glue that holds the sentence together. I'm not camping out on it because I'm looking for triads here to kind of make this whole thing work. But actually that phrase, in Christ, um, it occurs, I think, 11 times in these verses. In Christ, in him, in whom, in the beloved. It's... It's really the stitch work that Paul uses to make this all, this all hold together. It all holds together in Christ. And then, of course, it all reaches fulfillment in the Holy Spirit, which is the business end of God's blessings. Uh, the one who's dwelling in us makes Jesus a present reality and shows us the Father. These are things that God does, and he does them threefoldly. But the reason God does this work of salvation threefoldly, by choosing us and redeeming us and sealing us, the reason he's got these three actions he does towards us 
is because in God himself, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then this is the crucial connection, that God does this threefold thing to us, because in this case, God is triune in himself. Right? This, this takes you back uh, behind the idea that God just does a threefold thing, sort of like God does fatherly stuff and does sonly stuff and does spiritual stuff, but in himself, God is just like one person. I should stand over here. Sometimes I'm in the habit of, um, when I when I explain wrong ideas, I step away from the pulpit and say, okay, I'm over here in the wrong ideas corner. Because otherwise I look at people's notes afterwards and they write down the stuff I was explaining that's wrong and I say, no, no, I meant the opposite of that. So um, it is not the case that God is just one person who puts on different masks for different tasks or goes into different modes when he's in different moods or says like, really, it's all just about one up here. But let me do a little father-son-spirit thing. Let me like choose and redeem and, and seal because um, that works out well, because, like, stories should have three parts. No, in fact, in this case, with the biggest thing God has done, with salvation itself, with the incarnation of the Son of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God has done that. The Father has sent the Son and the Spirit, because in himself from all eternity, what God is, is Father, Son, and Spirit. It's because God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit that the Father sends the Son and Spirit to make our salvation, to be our salvation. That's the depth of intimacy we have here with God in the blessing with which God has blessed us. God gives himself in this gift, right? It's not just that God is up there in heaven being himself saying, well, I can make anything. Let me make some cool stuff and give it to him. No, in the gift of salvation, you can see in the structure of the sentence, in the gift of salvation, what God gives us is God. God gives us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to be the blessing of our salvation. God's plan is not just about giving us stuff, not even giving us spiritual stuff. The good news of the gospel is that God gave us himself. The good news of the gospel is that the Father so loved us that he gave us the Son. The Father sent his Son in the fullness of time, and then he sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 4 through 6. He gave himself to us to be our salvation, to be our father, to be ours. Think of this. If he gave everything else and left himself out, he wouldn't be giving enough. Not even if he gave us the gospel. Even if God could, per impossible, give the gospel but not put God in it, it wouldn't be good news. And again, I'll recommend the book I've never read, John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. It's got to be great. Look at that title. Yeah. Um, because the content of the gospel has to be this personal self-giving of God. This is even how it works among people, right? We give, our, uh, we give ourselves when we give things. When we have people over for a meal, it's not just that they need calories and we're a convenient delivery mechanism. Uh, it, it's that we are giving ourselves and the calories that we are delivering in the meal, right? When we give people gifts, it really is the thought that counts. That's not just a lame excuse for when you give a bad gift. It actually is almost never the case that the person desperately needed the thing you gave them. It's usually the gift is part gift. Um, uh, this, this is the part of the gift that makes it a gift and not just the provision of a need. Uh, it's that you put yourself into it. It's a gift if it's interpersonal. If it's the basis or the expression or the medium of communion between persons. 
This self-giving nature of a gift applies to trivial things in our daily lives, but it also applies to the big spiritual things. So Paul says to the Thessalonians over in 1 Thessalonians 2, um, being affectionately desirous of you, he writes to the Thessalonians, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So it's not that, it's not that Paul's saying something like, I'm more important than the gospel, right? What's more important, that Paul gave himself or that he gave the gospel? Well, it's more important that he gave the gospel, but he's telling the Thessalonians, I put myself in that with you because I love you. So in giving you this, I also gave you myself. What he's underlining there is actually something about the nature of the gospel, that God didn't just give us stuff. It's not just that God's sitting on a big uh, pile of blessings and says, I got all these blessings, let me give some of them. No, it's that in giving these blessings, God gave himself. If it's this way among people, how much more so with God? He gives himself. What has broken upon us in the giving of the Son and the Spirit from the Father is the very life of God, given to us to be our salvation. This is why God puts the name of God on us when he blesses us. And this is something that you can see in the deep structure of the Old Testament. When God, um, when God blesses his people, he does so by giving his name to them, by putting his name on them. So in Numbers chapter 6, the Levitical blessing, God tells the Levites, here's how to bless the people. When you bless them, put my name on them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The name of the Lord put on the people by the Levites three times. It also goes to the Great Commission at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus says, go out and teach them to obey all I've commanded, all I've commanded you, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's this blessing in which God gives over his name or puts his name on the people, just like the Lord bless you and keep you, just like in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this personal self-giving. God is in the business of saving by self-giving, by identifying himself with his people and putting his name on them in exactly this threefold way that corresponds to his threefold internal life, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Trinitarian blessing. The completed doctrine of the Trinity is the point that God was driving at all along in the Bible. I'm going to make a big claim here. That's why when the early church got together, read the whole Bible, and thought, we should summarize that, because uh, they didn't even have like, um, printed books back then. You had to carry like a whole bundle of scrolls with you. It was kind of a hassle. They said, you know, in addition to reading the whole Bible, we should summarize very briefly something you could fit on a 3 by 5 card. I don't know if they had 3 by 5 cards back then. Something short that you could say, when I say I believe what the Bible says, here's what I mean. I mean I believe in, and what do they come up with? The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in his only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the summary of the Bible, the whole thing. There's a lot going on in here. There's a lot of crazy stuff in here, especially the Old Testament, right? But if you take a step back from it and say, what's the whole thing mean, and what's the whole thing mean about God? The answer is the whole thing means God is the Father who sent the Son and the Holy Spirit because God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If it's kind of the punchline of the Bible. When you get to the end of Matthew and Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that phrase has not been spoken before. But if you've been paying attention all through the books of the Bible, you go, oh, it's kind of a surprise ending that makes sense. Yeah? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That identifies God. That identifies this God. So, that is three sets of three things. But, 
Um, I want to do a little bit of a bonus round for you. Here's a bonus three things, kind of a, a freebie threebie or something like that. There's another thing that is repeated three times in here, and it's easy to underline. It's actually uh, the words themselves are right here. You might have already noticed it. To the praise of his glory is a little phrase that occurs in verses 6, 12, and 14. As, as Paul's putting that, and this is, this is how you know that Paul didn't just come home from the zoo and explode by trying to tell you everything he saw all day. This has a past, present, future structure. It's got a Father, Son, Holy Spirit structure. It's got a blessed with a blessing structure. And he puts in, in verses 6, 12, and 14, the recurring phrase, to the praise of his glory. He predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And verse 14, the Spirit is given with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This sentence is all about what God has done for us. He has blessed us in Christ in this astonishing way. But just because it's what God has done for us, it does not follow that all of these blessings have been poured out for our glory or for the praise of our glory. On the contrary, all the blessings of salvation redound to the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of God alone. Uh, the, the Reformation motto was soli deo gloria, to the praise of God's glory alone. Three times in this sentence, Paul returns to tag this base. Three times he draws back to remind us specifically the goal and the purpose of all the blessing is that it should amount to the praise of the glory of God. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name be the glory. And never more so than in the New Testament, in the fulfillment of salvation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I promised you that I would fail to do justice to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I hope that I have kept my promise to you this morning. Uh, the Blessed Trinity has blessed believers with a blessing and a plan of salvation that stretches from the past through the present into the future in order to establish intimate fellowship between us and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory. I actually had to leave a lot out of explaining what's in Ephesians 1 through, 3, 1 through, through 14. There's a lot more in there. But I hope that in our time together this morning, it served as at least an introduction to and an invitation to the blessing of the salvation of the Trinity. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for making known to us the mystery of your will. Thank you for the miracle of salvation that puts into effect your will to be known by us. Father, we confess that these things are too great for us, that they are high and lofty things into which we wouldn't try to peek if you hadn't condescended to reveal them to us. Lord, these are things that we might flatter ourselves with to our own harm if we didn't have the solid confidence that they are for our good, or you wouldn't have made them known to us. Just as Paul prayed for the readers of Ephesians, that you, the Father of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of you. Lord, I pray that you would move on all of us today to bring about that same miracle of spiritual understanding, opening up the eyes of our hearts so we can see the great things that are in your word. Father, if I've said anything distracting or misleading here this morning, send your Holy Spirit as the searcher of hearts and the searcher of the deep things of God to shake those things out of our ears and away from our attention and out of our memories. 
But Lord, where this exposition of your great and holy sentence of blessing has opened up a new angle of thought, has indicated the head of a trail that begins a journey into the spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us with strength to go down that road. Grace us with grace to grow in nearness to you. and Bless us with the blessing of knowing and trusting your word. Amen.